Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilisphere podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. Season two of the Veer Vulnerabilisphere podcast is sponsored by our good friends at Standard and Strange, where the clothes and the people are anything but ordinary, and the motto is own fewer, better things. All right, Albert, we got another installment here on the show today, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited about what we're talking about. We have uh, a big sigh of relief in our country, and uh, I got a, a bunch of really cool things that happened to me in the last little bit, and uh, I don't know, I just woke up in a, a really great mood today, uh, even though it was a little, I had a little dry mouth and stuff from all the weather, but um, I'm feeling good, man. How are you doing up there in uh, New York? Um, well, I mean, the sigh of relief, it's mm-hmm. true. I think a lot of people feel a sigh of relief. At the same token, I think one of the things we're going to talk about on today's show is that lots of people probably didn't feel a sigh of relief. Yeah. And there still <laughs> is this. I would, I would, you know, really have a deeper sigh of relief if I believe some of the root causes of what is making people have trouble communicating uh, so, so uh, d- dangerous, really, for our, for civil society. I don't want to, you know, plunge into the deep end of the pool. So for the moment, I'm just going to be grateful that my, my own personal feeling that, um, you know, I, I, I had issue with our current president's uh, inability, it seemed, to really tell the truth. And regardless of what you think of his policies, I was very suspicious. I just could not ever abide by the idea that a, a leader who doesn't tell the truth can, can ultimately serve the people. So that was, that was my, my basic orientation towards this whole issue. But, you know, the divisions are deep. Um, and it's it's going to be a, a really kind of a, a really weird period, I think, coming up. Um, I think our, our country um, is going to be facing a lot of things simultaneously that it's going to need to either look at, process, um, address, or go further into this, no, 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 I don't want to listen. No, 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 you're wrong. No, no, no. So that that's a, t- a bit of a topic that we'll talk about today. I'm curious, you said that you woke up in this great mood and you had some amazing things happen. Is that something we're going to wait till our guest is on for you to tell him as well? Or do you want to just tell me? Oh, they're, they're small things, you know, uh, some of them denim related, but, um, (laughs) you got that shirt. I love that shirt. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm wearing my, my grail shirt. Um, and then early this morning, Evan, I don't know how he's up this early. Um, he's probably riding his bike and texting me. Um, but he sent me that, um, the Blackways company has, um, the Ironheart flannel. It's the, uh, the black one with uh, the yellow stripes that he was wearing. And oh. obviously I'm from Pittsburgh. I need that. Totally sold out. Missed it. Cause I was at work. Uh, he's like, dude, they have a large over at, uh, at Blackways. And I was like, sweet. So I got that, you know, uh, <laughs> what, was tell me, what is Blackways? Uh, it's a, it's, um, a denim company. Um, no, Sweden. It's Sweden, Sweden. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll let my, uh, confusion out of there, but <laughs> no, yeah, that's um, great. So you're on, you're basically on a, on a shirt induced high, like, uh, Oh yeah. Ironheart. Shirt. <laughs> and that, what is the fabric of your, is that a denim or is that some, this other kind is of denim. Yeah. So this one? is the, the 16 ounce, um, super black fades to gray. So this is going to start very black. You know, uh, it's going to end up gray. I'm super excited. I have the, the matching pants and the 21 ounce. So I'm just, uh, somehow a lot of my denim dreams came true in a year that I did not think anything was going to happen um, like that. I was like already putting it aside. I'm like, yep, yeah, I'm going to wait till 2021 to uh, pick up some more gear. But I, I love that you have happen. a black <laughs> denim suit. I mean, that's like oh, yeah. Johnny, Johnny Cash territory. I mm-hmm. can't wait. And you're you know, obviously 
you were originally Ironheart Fades was your was oh, your yeah. Instagram handle. So we're we're all looking forward to seeing those fades. Um, me too, man. Me too. <laughs> okay. Well, look. I mean, uh, we're gonna we're gonna introduce our our guest, uh, Doug Williams. Mm-hmm. Douglas Williams. Doug Williams. Uh, I call him Doug. I think you'll introduce him as Douglas. Doug is a singer. Um, and, um, I actually first heard him, uh, working on a, a festival that I promote and I just thought he was uh, great. And then I went to his website and I was like, wow, this guy takes pictures. He writes poetry. He's a deep dude. And we started getting to know, to, uh, know each other. And, uh, last election four years ago, I remember reading some really, really eloquent posts on Facebook um, by him about what he saw happening in the in the race uh, uh, that year, and I was just like, "Wow, this guy is obviously paying attention and cares about America." And uh, I, it made me want to get to know him. We we made some contact. I went and heard him um, uh, sing some other performances, and we became friends. And he's one of my uh, thinks a lot about America friends. He lo- we we love to get on a, a call and talk about the country, try to have the the long haul perspective. You know, looking at at art and history and music, and really look at our country. What makes being American so special, and uh, also what makes it such a heartbreak sometimes when we fall so incredibly hard from from our ideals? So Doug and I have that kind of friendship, and so of course, doing, leading leading up to the election, uh, we were talking a lot, and frankly, really going to some dark places about what we thought might be happening. And so anyway, it just so happened we were talking a lot more lately than usual, and uh, that gave me the idea that for our first episode after the election, uh, Doug would be a good guest. I also tried to get Van Jones, and I've had no luck so far. <laughs> Him crying on CNN was the great, for me, the great moment. Absolutely. Yeah, that was, that was a big moment. Ever. So Van, if you're out there, Van, yes, yes. come on our show. It's good being a father today, I can say that, <laughs> and every other day. But um, yeah, let's give him the official introduction and, and bring him on. Douglas Williams is an acclaimed bass baritone who sings a wide range of opera, concert, and recital repertoire. Born in Connecticut and now based in Berlin, Germany, he has sung all over the world from festivals to studios or taking the stage with leading conductors and orchestras. Doug trained at the New England Conservatory and the Yale School of Music. When he's not making music, Doug spends his time reading, writing poetry, taking photos, and enjoying nature. Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Hey, guys. Glad to be here. Greetings from Berlin, Germany. So um, so just I want to give people a sense of uh, a little bit of who we're talking to here today, uh, since you're not like our, in our usual denim community universe. Um, and, and, yeah. <laughs> and uh, just, just very briefly, like you, you're from Connecticut. What, what town in Connecticut were you born? I was born and raised in Farmington, Connecticut, central Connecticut, really uh, exactly halfway between New York and Boston. So, uh, split between the Yankees and the Red Sox, Ouch. the Giants and the Patriots. Yeah. Right on the, right on the dividing line, suburb of Hartford. And, and, uh, did you, yeah, um, was a great was a great town to grow up in a lot of uh nature nearby grew up enjoying that and your um your uh house was it was it kind of in a suburban like you saw your neighbors or was it more rural we were in a suburb where we knew all the neighbors around lots of kids in the neighborhood and uh plenty of fields and woods nearby to go uh 
make trouble in. And and that uh, your basic family composition is what you have a sibling, a brother. Yeah, I have uh, one older brother, two years older, and uh, my parents, who are uh, married, forty six years now, and uh, it was a it was a pretty good place to grow up for sure. And, and actually, was it in the town of Farmington that you met um, Adam and I? We know our and interviewed our friend Carl Morosky. Uh, was <laughs> yeah. he actually? Did you get- yeah, we went. <laughs> We were in Sunday school together. Oh, wow. Yeah. We went to the same <laughs> church. <laughs> yeah, we went to the same church, and then our families got to know each other, and uh, we would go up to uh, his family at a lake house and a, and a boat. Uh, so we'd go up there, spend a the night there, uh, get towed behind the boat on the lake. I mean, all of this sounds just like out of, a, out of some kind of American childhood movie, but it, it kind of was was very lucky. You and I went to school in the same city. Um, so you went to the uh, New England Conservatory. I went to Emerson College. Um, yeah. I love oh, nice. walking up, um, you know, by Symphony Hall and, you know, just, you know, walking the green line um, close to Fenway and all of that. And just, yeah. man, um, for me, just taking, like, going to school in Boston from a smaller town, especially, you know, like you said, you know, rural suburban kind of that stuff but everyone knows each other there's gossip you know you can't even look the wrong way and you know someone's talking about it um from that to a city where there's just you know nine colleges in the heart of it and then surrounding it so many more um that's huge um how would you say that like your uh, experience in like college from your like you know kind of growing up life you know changed because i know for me it was like a night and day difference yeah somehow i i was just I mean, I was always kind of an explorer, always kind of uh, ready to uh, ready to get out on my on my own feet. And I remember my parents dropped me off, and uh, we loaded my things into my dorm room there, and I, I just waved goodbye. I was like, "I'm I'm I'm ready to to be on my own and, and explore this." And uh, I had a great time in Boston, yeah, for sure. Great walking city, so much music going on. Um, yeah, I was kind of like a rat in a maze when I got there, just ready to experience it all as much as I could. And and did you go into uh, college already on the track of uh, thinking you'd be a professional musician? Yeah, uh, New England Conservatory, so I, I studied music. I, I was just really lucky. I grew up in Farmington with... Uh, incredible music program led by this guy who had so much charisma. He commanded so much respect from the rest of the faculty, even respect from the athletic director. So he built a program actually where guys could sing, guys could be in choir. And uh, that was helpful for me. It also, my two best friends uh, of 25 years, I met them in high school choir. And um, he was the, he was kind of the first influence and the first teacher to push me in certain direction uh, to check out some summer programs. Tanglewood, a great music festival. I spent two summers there as a high school student. And then it was sort of one step to the other. And then I wanted to apply to music schools and ended up at the New England Conservatory. Yeah, I know uh, performing, you know, any style of music is, you know, getting up on stage, doing it, definitely have the jitters. Um you know, for, I would say when I grew up, it was mainly like rock bands and metal and punk and stuff. Um, choirs weren't, weren't 
the biggest, um, you know, in Indiana PA, but I know, uh, once I got to Boston, totally different. Um, the acapella scene was huge, um, during the time oh, I yeah. was there. Um, but did you like have any kind of, uh, you know, challenges with the genre of music, um, that you performed or did, did it give you a, a certain look, um, with, you know, different uh, crowds of people? Um, cause I was there, I would, I played uh, a metal band for a while. I played like uh, kind of like a jazzy funk um, little trio for a little bit. And then I also recorded hip hop a lot, um, you know. So oh, wow. I, I had a very wide musical <laughs> taste in, and kind of experience that I was in. Um, but uh, the only like real like singing and choir and acapella stuff was when I did, you know, the production and radio edits for the acapella choirs and I would just mm. make their spots and, you know, post them up so they could, you know, fly on the, on the radio. So I'm just curious cause I, I kind of had a different experience of the group, um, and people that were the musicians that I was with. Um, did you have any other, um, you know, kind of experiences, you know, w- with your group and, and your genre of music? For sure. I've definitely had to find my way into, uh, the identity of me as a classical music singer, as an opera singer. Um, classical music is still kind of a conservative game, actually. Um, although that's changing and evolving for sure. But um, I didn't really know why I was getting into it at the beginning. I just knew that I, I loved, the, well, I knew I loved the music. I knew I had a talent, a natural ability for it. But for me to find my place in it, to find, uh, it's to also learn it. Learning to sing is also a journey into your body. So you, you've got to hook up to your body, figure out who you are uh, physically. And um, so it's definitely been a process of me uncovering who I am also and, and, and also embracing the whole spectrum of who I am, all my, all my interests that, that, that kind of used to confuse me. Cause while I, I mean, I, for example, I, I love to go like backpacking. I find that like spiritually essential to go spend some time in nature. And, um, how does that fit into, uh, being an opera singer? I mean, it's taken me some time to say, to realize like, well, that, that's just me. It all, it all comes from the same place. And actually one thing spills over, informs the other. So it's definitely been a, been a journey of um, uh, becoming secure in, in my identity in, in, all of its, in all of its facets. And then from that place, singing. That's what singing is all about, of course, being, being honest, honest, being... Uh, genuine which i mean leads a step into like vulnerability right i mean what what you just described embracing the fullness of who you are bringing it all into what you do yeah. uh, i'm just curious uh does that word vulnerability i mean you know it's obviously what our show is about tell us a little bit about that word in your in your uh usage how how, how do you use it and how do you identify with that word probably uh, yeah vulnerability on on so many levels, I mean, singing in this style of music where you're, you're using your whole body as a kind of an acoustic instrument to produce a sound. So we don't sing with a microphone. You've got to project your voice into a hall with, without any amplification. So that requires a lot of power. And, um, and also you've got to, as a man, you've got to use your whole deep voice. You've got to there's a certain masculine uh, quality that you have to 
or masculine expectation that you have to fulfill in this genre. I'm a bass baritone. People want to hear a manly voice coming out of me. At the same time, you you can't just be all all power. Um, in in one sense, in a kind of physiological sense, you'll you'll end up just being rigid and and stiff. So um, it's actually about uh, in my in my work with my teacher, it's actually about finding an equilibrium, finding a balance of uh, I'm supporting, I'm engaged, I'm I'm connected to. Uh, my most, uh, sometimes my, my darkest energy, my most raw passion, but at the same time, um, I'm staying open. I'm relaxed. Um, and that's kind of a, that's kind of a spiritual state of mind. It's also a, a physical, uh, balance that you have to find in your body between, uh, tension and relaxation. Uh, so it sounds like <laughs> that's kind of a tech- yeah, no, uh, that's great. Um, I, I'm seeing a lot of parallels between that and and martial arts. Um, I'm sure you guys have seen, you know, uh, the fist and and the hand, power and control. Um, and it seems like that's absolutely exactly what you're, you're talking about. Is yep. you have to, yeah. you know, give all this power, but you also have to control it, and that's your art, is you know, through your voice. In making an interpretation, though, I'm just curious. I mean, with acting, uh, I, I've always heard the phrases like, oh, he's a method actor or he's a classical actor, et cetera, et cetera. W- how does vulnerability come in, though, in, ter- in terms of interpretation? Do you, do you ever, like when you're reading the, uh, the uh, aria, the, mean, the lyrics to an aria you're going to sing, are you, are you sometimes thinking, oh, my God, I can relate to that? And does that color your approach to the text in some way i mean i mean by by nature we think of artists as vulnerable people but i i get the feeling that some artists are more vulnerable than others and i just wonder where you are on that spectrum yeah uh, for sure um being i think being a great artist is is about um opening your opening your heart really uh uh, and I've, I didn't realize this until uh, about 11 years ago. I actually went and did an acting program because I never felt like I really got the acting training that I was craving at music school. So I did this course at Shakespeare and Company in the Brookshires, Western Massachusetts. And there I really began to see like how actually I was really uh, closing off my heart to the world a lot, like kind of really protecting myself. And um, there were some terrific teachers there. And again, they actually related it a lot to a kind of physical feeling, like to try and locate a kind of physical tension that was an expression of uh, kind of emotional stoppage. I know that sounds kind of new agey, but (laughs) for me it, It, it was the it was the way that I it was the way into me to kind of see how I was kind of blocked off how I was kind of very defensive um, I would only let certain people into my emotional life and I realized like that I was cutting myself off from a whole spectrum uh, of of life really and that if if I wanted to make, be any kind of a, an effective artist on the stage I had to really start to work on this otherwise. 
um, not to mention for my life, but but as a for my career, I just I just realized that this is the only way for me is to start to just open to people, and um, that kind of got the muck uh, stirred up that that month I spent at Shakespeare and Company. Oh, tell us about the muck. What did you? What did you? <laughs> let's dive into the muck. Tell us a little bit about some of the some of the things that are going on. I mean, like that ma- masculine expectation about. I mean, you're a big dude. You're like six three. How tall are you? You're a big. Yeah. Yeah, six, you're three. six three. Yeah. Uh, you have a big deep voice. You have a commanding presence. I mean, I know because I've given you a hug. Yeah, you're you're yeah. a big dude. Um, so yeah. this expectation. Oh, Doug must be a certain way. I mean, was that part of this this muck that was being stirred up or? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think one one of the themes for me that I still have to work on is um, is because of this presence that DNA gave me, whatever you know, mom and dad, whatever. But I, I've had to. I realized that I I involuntarily will make myself smaller, and I was doing that in my voice. I was doing that in the way I stood the way I entered a room. It was like I was constantly apologizing, actually. Um, and uh, I had to start to realize that um, in doing that, actually, I was not letting all the all my light shine out, or and I also wasn't letting people in. So I had to, it was actually kind of coming to terms with like, you know, people, people want to partake in, in me, people want to, um, hear me at my, at my fullest, uh, that, that I wasn't doing the world any good by just sort of being, uh, only 50%, uh, inflated balloon. I, I, you know, I, I should, I should fulfill these things that I have. And actually in that process of kind of, um, rejoicing in myself, actually, that that was a way to, uh, to let people in actually, does that make sense? Hey man, I mean it's it's your story, so I mean you you tell it how, however it comes out to you. Um, you know, I think whenever we, you know, start to kind of go down this journey, we have like, okay, I know I'm not 100% right now, um, and then you kind of take a hard look at yourself. You get some feedback from a mentor or a teacher, um, and then you kind of you you yeah. have a focus. You're like, hey, you know, I need to I need to stand up. I need to be myself 100% of the time. As you were finding that information, as you were on that journey, how did that make you feel? Like, what what kind of emotions were were you playing with? Um, you know, whenever you were doing that deep discovery about yourself. Well, I should also mention um, it's a, quite a big part of it. But that time at Shakespeare and Company, I also started to think I had thought maybe I'm gay. And uh, it had been like something I had been kicking around for a while, but I had kind of pushed it away because like I didn't, on a superficial level, I didn't feel gay or I didn't project myself into uh, some gay, uh, a gay, the gay community. When in fact, that was the completely idiotic way to approach that question, (laughs) if you're gay or not. So, um, it, of course, it had to do with me. So um, I also had to had to start to like look at that question more, and which was also a question of of my heart and opening myself to 
to others. And um, I, it was a very, it was a very scary year, actually. It was a very dynamic year, I remember. Um, and I was like reading books and uh, self-help books and uh, um, trying to open myself to new people, people that I would normally wouldn't just like talk to strangers. I was talking to strangers at the bus stop and I just felt like this is, I'm on a mission. I have to, I have to like make up for lost time almost. I have to reach out to reach out to people, let people in. So it was almost like, like, things became more, I remember describing it to a friend once that year of, which was so full of change for me, that it was like technicolor. Like I, I it was like, I was seeing more colors almost. And, uh, but also I, I then went into like a couple years of like crazy friendships. Cause I was just like, I let people in, let people in, which maybe wasn't always the right idea. Um, because <laughs> like the, but the 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 floodgates were open but i also had the right teachers to to uh, encourage me to keep um kind of exploring all this stuff and and stay open and have you have you managed to to do you feel like that was a process that kind of stayed uh stayed on that line of openness do you feel like oh my god i it lasted for a while and then i started feeling like I was, I was losing the thread or do you feel like, wow, that really was a one it opened. And, and I kind of feel like that's kind of how I've lived my life for the most part. Have, have you been able to, to feel that you've remained open? I think that these openings can, can happen in waves actually. So that maybe that was like a big opening where I had a, a bunch of new ideas running through me. I had, I had the right teachers. It was the right time, but then I think things start to close and then, you have to look for other, you know, mentors and, and teachers, wise people play such a, such an important role. And uh, I'm so thankful for the teachers I had that, that kind of pointed me in the right direction. Uh, and I'm talking, even, even if it was my singing teacher, we were, we were talking about all this kind of stuff about vulnerability, about being uh, my, my, in my full self, um, about not being afraid to use my power uh, and, and use it in a generous, welcoming kind of way. So, so uh, I, I think these openings happen, and then it shrinks a little bit. But then, some you know these themes never go away, and there's there's all of these themes about uh, not being afraid to take up space, not being afraid to um, let someone into your life. There are things that I just know I'm gonna I'm gonna have to work at forever. Maybe I'll, uh, I won't have to work as hard because I've kind of shed, keep shedding light on these things. But um, I, I think that's a really great um, point. I, I think we talk about it on the show quite often with a lot of the people that we, that we talk to. That we, um, it's a work in progress. We, we never just go through the magic portal and live forever, happily ever after. And, Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and it reminds me a little bit of where we're at. And, you know, it's, it's the, the election uh, just just happened here in the U.S. and it's the same mm. thing. We're never going to just make our country in the right place, and democracy is healthy and vibrant, and everybody can go and relax. And yay, we did it. We're there. I mean, getting there is living in the moment. That's how we get there. We get there by by living our lives every day the way that we need to. Um, I want to get back to to mm. that moment in our history, collective history, the three of us being Americans. But I do want to. Uh, how long have you been in Berlin? 
six years. Okay, now. so I'm just curious. Um, did your ideas um, about America? How have they? Do you, do you think your identity as an American has been impacted by your living in Berlin, Germany? Well, I think I've. I always thought of myself as a kind of a cosmopolitan guy. I mean, I read, would read, read the, I thought I was up on what was going on in the world, but I have to say I, living here has given me a little bit of a, of a different perspective. May, the, the, the main point being, um, I just see how, how, how much media is consumed in the U.S. and how that kind of shapes everyone's worldview. And I mean, of course, Germany is... Uh, Everyone's got social media here, but it's just a little bit different. I mean, you don't have the cable news thing here. And so people, they're not as kind of plugged into to the, some of the stories, I think, that as we are in Americans. I started to realize that. On the other hand, um, I realized what's so special about being an American is we have this incredible engine of... Uh, possibility and potential and and energy and, and thinking about what what could what could it be what what are the possibilities and uh, whereas Germans have this like hardcore realism like oh, that's just not possible <laughs> which is also very uh, useful at times but there's something very special about this idea we have in America that that um, you can you can go for it. You know you you're allowed to dream, and you're allowed to uh, aim for something big, even if it maybe it it could be it could be just out of reach. But still, this idea of going for it, that idea, that dream, is the engine of so much uh, ingenuity and and goodness that's come out of America. Well, Biden in his acceptance speech. Uh, said, if there's one word I would use to describe America, it's possibility. And I was like, as he was saying, there's one word. Mm. I was like, wow, I wonder what word he's going to pick. And he said possibility, which is just mir mirroring what you just said. But I want to get back to something. I think yeah. you may have solved all of our problems. <laughs> I mean, oh, dang, I missed it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, okay. he, he said it. There's no doubt he said it. This media culture, media consumption, yeah, and cable yeah. news and blah blah blah. <laughs> what you're basically underlining, and I, my belief is uh, very much so that this constant fueling uh, by by the um, the media forces um, is that, you know, and it's obviously driven. They want you to watch. They want you to click. They want you to post and share. We're, I mean, in that movie, Social Dilemma, that's out. Everybody's talking about on Netflix. It's turned us into people more reactive and wired and trigger happy uh, uh, and less less um, uh, you know less able to disconnect and kind of take that breathe that moment and that breath to really think think things through on our own and we're we've all been ratcheted up into this idea that we have a set of unsolvable uh, issues in our in our country and I, I do think I mean, that's a big part of it. Be not being plugged into the media 
is, uh, I mean, think about it. That's, that's what happens when you go off in nature and turn off your phone. The world is a different place. Uh, I, and I, I, that's why I asked you that question. I think Americans abroad are, are able to give us a view of America. And I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned those particular points um, about, uh, you know, it's not like you're saying Germans are not well-informed. They have their sources, but they're not so plugged into it. It's not, it's not like a constant barrage, yeah. it seems. And if you, watch, if you watch the news here, it is so, I mean, the, the main broadcaster, the main uh, nightly news show, it's called Tagesschau. It is so dry. It is boring news. It's like a newscast from the 1950s USA. I mean, it is just someone reading the news. It is, it is so unsensationalized. Well, that's what I love about watching PBS. I, I watch a PBS NewsHour, and I just love the yeah. temperature of the show. It's just so... Right. Uh, and, 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 you know, CNN, there's no doubt. I mean, my God, the way they were revving up the election coverage... It just it was making us all crazy, uh, and I don't want to you know I definitely don't want to go to that dangerous path of blaming the news and and going into that fake news thing. And I I think thank God for journalists because Lord knows where our culture would be at without the the light that a good journalism uh, uh, brings out. But um, yeah, we I, I really do think that this this is going to be a major issue, um, a major issue for us to contend with. One of the reasons that you know, we, we're doing this show. One of the reasons I like doing this show is I feel, and we get a lot of feedback on this. People like that. It doesn't feel so wired and that it's not like a political show with a political agenda. People enjoy getting away from this constant, uh, electioneering sloganeering, uh, uh, that, that we feel like we're going through. But one of, one of the things that came out of this election, I mean, it's still a very d divided country in terms of the, uh, the vote, the vote was, you know, very much, uh, it was not some landslide, uh, for the Democrats and it wasn't, it wasn't a complete route of, you know, by any means for either party. Uh, it was definitely, I think, uh, re repudiation of aspect of, of serious issues with, uh, Trump's personality and, 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 uh, his, his manner. Uh, but, one of the words that you and I talked about and kept thinking about was was this idea of reconciliation. How do we how do we reconcile the parties that are in our country that are having issues? And you you said you sent me this beautiful long note, which is more like an essay. You should almost post it as a blog post. And you talked about you talked about um, your bubble. Classical music is a bubble. Uh, you know, in my professional life. You know, it's a, there's a certain kind of bubbleness being in the classical music industry. You meet a lot of educated people, people who've traveled around the world, international, cosmopolitan, all those words you just used. And you talked about the bubble is such that you don't even see the end of your bubble. And that, I mean, tell us a little bit about that bubble. And, 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 cause, and then I want to tell you a story of what happened in my little bubble the last couple of days. So I'll, you, you first about your bubble. Yeah, the bubble thing was definitely my first impression when I woke up on Wednesday morning and saw the first results of the election was that um, aside from a few relatives that I'm not in regular touch with, I don't know who voted for the other guy. So <laughs> I, it just made me realize like, I'm always th saying, oh, they're brainwashed, they're brainwashed. But I'm probably brainwashed too, and and uh, 
and and kind of being being programmed to uh, being re reduce in this in this media culture, this social media culture, everything is kind of reduced to talking points and and also and also it's a lot of um, how can I want to I want to see the I want to agitate the other side actually, and I, I I'm completely seduced by that also. I love to parody the other side. I love to uh, watch uh, Saturday Night Live do their thing, but actually, like that, that is not sustainable. Actually, uh, all of that. I mean, it's not. Um, it's not actual communication, and um, people who voted for Trump. There's probably there's a lot of people, of course, who who have who have real concerns or or whose pain is real, whose sense of um, separation from uh, people in charge or uh, feeling left out, left behind. Those are real feelings, and uh, they can't. We can't just. Um, if you voted for Biden, you can't just say. Uh, you can't just dismiss that because <laughs> a lot of people voted for Trump and the emotions are coming from somewhere. Um, and so I'm thinking about where, where is there common ground? Well, well, there's a lot of people who, who, were, who were exhausted by this on both sides, I think. They're, they're exhausted by the, uh, by the rhetoric, by the... Um, by the aggression, and um, in many cases, their relatives are, are their, their neighbors, their people in in the community. And um, although I'm not living in the U.S., and this is a real tall order, but I could imagine some kind of movement where people are getting together and they're just talking, and it's not it's it's reality based interaction. It's not happening online it's not happening for online um, because everything that happens in reality then gets put through this filter reduced distilled to the hottest talking points but people have to meet up in and and start having conversations i mean that's really broad that's really general but I believe that's where it starts because every time I'm back in the U.S., you know, I I I I just see the U.S. through what my friends tell me, what my parents tell me, and from the media that I read. And then I'm back in the U.S. and I'm in Nashville or Houston or Seattle, Chicago, wherever, and I'm just reminded about how wonderful people are, how kind people are. You meet people in the hotel breakfast and. Uh, conversations happen or on the plane and that's like the the seed of of some something good you know may, you're, maybe you're not trying to solve every problem in the country or get down to every social issue in that first conversation but I'm reminded of just the goodness of people and that in fact like Americans are there's a lot of um, wonderful qualities that you don't always get here at least at the first meeting but you you know you you sh you land in the airport in Nashville and uh, you know there, there's the, there's a kind of warmth 
And, and uh, this, this friendliness, this openness, this curiosity that Americans have, I, I still believe in it. And I still believe that it's the starting point for, for real conversation, meaningful connection. Well, I, uh, I have some good news and I have some other news for you. Um, there is a, a project um, out that did get started in the States. It's called the, um, the Portals Project. And what it does is sets up storage units in different hubs and cities where you can go in. Um, and second part is it is online, um, but it is real people in, in a storage container um, that projects another screen from another city or country. And people just have conversations. Um, and it's, it's been um, tracked That's and there's cool. a scientific study on that. Um, one of the, the biggest things um, was regarding the Black Lives Matter um, and also um, communication with police and how, the, how people feel um, that uh, policing has done in their communities. Uh, there are projects out there. And, you know, guess when I learned that about? Well, three months ago. That thing's been going on for a couple years. Um, so kind of going back to this media is wow. where are our priorities in media? Um, where are our priorities as a country? And what are our priorities that we talk about? Um, I got to bring a little Buddhism to this uh, conversation because uh, and it's one of my favorite, favorite topics. But um, I recently um, started reading yeah, cool. uh, the Tibetan book of living and dying. Um, and there's just so much, um, you know, it's, it's about death. But this subject can really kind of uh, spill into this because, you know, we're all mortals here. We all have, you know, our, our presidents, our country leaders, our prime ministers. But eventually, you know, us on this conversation, you know, the politicians, we're, we are eventually going to die. That's going to happen. But we get to live on and pass on so much information and so much wealth and knowledge to the next generation. I think if we prioritized the transition, if we prioritize the conversation the being able to do it for the next person rather than what's happening right now, I think that gentle shift in the conversation can really start to you know bridge those gaps that that we're seeing here. Um, so just being able to to talk about what comes next, and I think right now that's a huge huge topic, and I think we can really seize the opportunity to do it because we okay great mm. Biden's elected, you know Democrats pumped. Some Republicans are pumped. Some people aren't. Uh, we know that. That's okay. But one thing I think we're all kind of looking around to see is like, what's up next? What's coming next? Not only for the U.S., but all of our international relations. Because so many international friends have gone, whoo, okay, like let's let's start the conversation again and and let's keep this going. Um, so whenever we talk about like that that media attention that, you know, kind of attention as a commodity, um, you know, I think a gentle shift towards what's coming next beyond ourselves and what's beyond just me as an individual will really push that communication. Um, so my question to you is like, you know, what, what do you think would be that, you know, kind of gentle hand that kind of guides this in a progressive way? Um, cause for me, I think it's talking about what comes next. Um, I'm just curious as to, to what you'd think about that. I think that's a great starting point, a great way to get the uh, the conversation going. When you t when you talk about like what what's our vision for a local community? How do we what do we want our schools to look like? Uh, how do we want to feel when we walk down the street? Maybe focusing 
focusing on local local discussions for visions for for a local uh, communities. And what else was I going to say? Another. <laughs> I mean, the community is a great start. You were saying before, you know. Um, children and relatives having very opposing views. I know that's true in my life um, between my parents and my brother. Um, I'm kind of a, a little different than them, um, but we're still a family and we still kind of have to, uh, to get through this together. And there was a little bit of, you know, some talking before uh, the election, but you know, we're all, we're all saying like, Hey, let's just leave that part out of it and continue on. Um, and, and it's really hard. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, I think there must be a lot of people, I mean, in my bubble, I know that there's people craving civility, craving neighborliness, and there must be people on the other side too, who feel the same way. And I feel like in that, in that there's kind of a truce there. There's a moment for, for people to come together and say like, well, do we, do we want to go on in this way that we're, we're just uh, reduced to talking points and trying to upset the other side like this is some kind of a like a game <laughs> uh, like like a game basically or 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 do we want to you know have a different type of conversation even if we're coming from different places i feel like maybe that's that's another point of agreement is that we agree we want to change the change the tone well that was another real memorable line for me from Biden's speech was basically he said that, you know, we've we it's a choice if we decide that we can't uh, work together and make compromises. That's a choice. Just uh, we could decide to work together or decide we, we can't work together. But it is a choice. And I I'm a real believer in that concept. I think we choose what we value and how we live if we. If we choose people as a priority, that impacts how we think every day and our choices in terms of how we make a living, how we treat our neighbors, if we prioritize people. And if we prioritize love, we deprioritize hate and aggression. Uh, you know, it's not rocket science. You have to pick what it is you're trying to do. If you, if you prioritize and value community and civility, then you have to work on building one and being civil. Um, I couple just a couple of other little things and that I've been thinking about. I kind of been seeing America as a big dysfunctional family. The, the Republicans are like the <laughs> abusive father, and the Democrats are like the the the, 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 the suffering mother. And the it, I think the American public are like the kids who just can't like they're like if you guys can't live together, then like let us be free of your bullshit because we're getting tired of hearing. You, it's actually yeah. it's, it, the, the politicians. I think do want it ma to make it sound as though they're reflecting their communities and their the choices of the people who support them. But I think it's exactly the opposite way around. I think that they um, are deciding that not uh, uh, working together is a choice they've made, and they've probably made it because of special interests all the way around. And I don't want to say who's more guilty than the other. I have my opinions, but I won't. I won't say them here. But I do this. Met this. This idea of the dysfunctional family. I can't help but think that that's where that's where we're at. So I think as children, uh, at a certain point, children become adults, and they need to tell even their parents, "Hey, it's time." You guys are doing a destructive job, and we have to hold them accountable. And I and I really do hope 
the public that's gotten engaged on this election will stay engaged and really not let these people go off to their own, uh, these politicians go off to their own worst excesses. I do believe that Trump's unique um, negativity, uh, he really fanned the flames. I mean, boy, oh boy, he made anyone who didn't vote for him feel like a stranger and uh, and an alien in their own country. Um, And I, I just think that's a horrible, horrible thing for a president to do. I mean, at the very least, the president should set the basic idea that we're all Americans, we're all part of the same family. So I'm hoping that that will take the the pot off the boil. I think uh, Adams' ideas um, uh, about looking for the future on a practical say, uh, way, I would love to see the Republicans and Democrats right now name three priorities that are obviously important and work on them to get the ball rolling to start learning how to work together. Don't solve everything. Don't go into the real uh, hot button issues. Get a handle on the virus, get people the help they need to survive uh, and get through the economic downturn we've just been through. And how about some just basic ideas on how to make our footprint on the environment a little bit less horrible? Okay, let's just come up with a couple of things and maybe we'll learn, you know what? Does it really matter if we win? Do we have to always win? It gets us back to what Boo Ray said, remember Adam? That that ward with being, you know, being right. to be right. Maybe we'll learn that that cooperating and 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 compromising is actually kind of fun and actually rewarding and maybe provides a more lasting pleasure than this pyric or pyric or however you're supposed to say it victory where we think we're going to vanquish permanently people who think differently from us because I I do think over time. If we keep talking, we all tend to go more towards the center and more towards balance and moderation. I mean, I just think that is a more a more sensible approach to every aspect of life. You know, we can't have no government and there's definitely a possibility of too much government. Oh, my God. Rocket science. A little compromise. It's not that hard, folks. And I kind of felt that was the vibe Biden was sort of hoping to give last night was it's not that hard. We can decide to do it differently. And, you know, just. Watching the Sunday news programs, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see. I would love to see a couple of the Republicans break with their party and just say, you know what, a little bit of compromise. Let's take the extremes out of of all of our politics. Let's begin to rebuild the middle class, but also the the political middle, the middle of just sensible policies, balanced policies that consider Mm -hmm. the welfare, the, 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 the greater good of the country so anyway there's my what four minute way too long uh uh, speech but that's where that's where i'm at this this sunday morning after the election well albert um i I love what you have to say but i do have to challenge you on on one thing and that is it's not harder than rocket science and i think vulnerability is harder than rocket science there are books we've sent people to the moon um it's it's just math uh when it comes down to it math and physics uh, whenever you have to confront yourself and your identity and what encompasses you as a human, I think that's a little bit harder than math. I got a calculator. I can do it. Uh, there's no calculator that, uh, computes your emotion or computes how you're, uh, feeling in a, in a general situation. So, I mean, obviously we need to work with our climate. We need to work with our economy and we need to work with our people in this country and not only for ourselves, but for everyone else, there's Americans abroad and there are international people in our, in our country. So we need to do it for everyone. 
not just ourselves. Um, and I do have one last thing I kind of want to um, to talk about here today, and that is, you know, winning versus losing. And there's a lot of you know ads and stuff out there, you know, um, using Trump's uh, you know famous words against him is calling people a loser, um, and I don't think that's right for this situation. I don't think we should call him a loser. I think what we should say is Donald Trump learned a lesson. America learned a lesson that we can't do this anymore. That is not a four-year thing that that we're interested in. And the lesson that we learned is that we need to prioritize everyone uh, in our country. And we need to to give everyone a voice and we need to give everyone a say. And I think that's what really won the election. Um, is that we we want to do that and calling people losers, saying you're fired, really dismissing people, isn't going to continue that conversation. Like we've said before, we got to send it out with love. So, what lessons can we learn from the last four years that'll make the next four years even better? Well, I think I think that's a great point, and I don't mind. Absolutely don't mind you challenging me on the idea of what's harder, <laughs> rocket science or vulnerability. Honestly, if you saw me with a with a calculator, it's actually math. Uh, but anyway, um, no, I just I just want to actually add a little bit of a personal note. Um, I I normally have avoided in my Instagram feed overt political uh, commentary, and this week I I did drop a couple of thoughts about about what I thought was the problem with our current president and and his his grasp on the, the truth. And I did have a couple of people um, write to me and say, well, our friendship's over. Uh, and, and I have to say that was really painful. That was oh, really, yeah. really painful. I, I don't think I, what I said was controversial to say that the truth matters, that character matters. I don't think that was controversial. I wasn't talking about abortion. I wasn't talking about uh, some other controversial issues. I was just talking about the truth and it was really painful to have a couple of people say goodbye. I mean, literally, I saw, you know, an hour later, they were no longer following me. And people who I've had conversations, like long conversations with, who we were having fun explaining why we were on different sides of the political spectrum and why we had different views of politics. And I don't know, I, I don't know, whatever advice you want to give me, I, some part of me is thinking, keep reaching out, keep calling, keep texting. But what do you do? Uh, I, 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 was, I was really saddened. That was like the saddest thing that happened as a result of all this was, uh, you know, I, I just don't want to say goodbye to that possibility. It's really tough, man. Yeah, I think you, 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 you guys have both touched on something, this idea of um, that the objective cannot be to eliminate the other side. It's, like, <laughs> it's totally absurd yeah. and it's, it's it's contrary to uh, what makes us human, actually, um, to be able to relate to people and, and fi to find some way to relate to them. So this business of like, I'm sorry, I'm unfollowing you. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a tough one to crack, but it's because it's really where we at where we're at with our with our behavior. Uh, this kind of like knee jerk um, re response to people who don't agree with us. Well, if my friend is, is listening, do me a favor, text me back, call me. You know I'm going to want to talk to you any, any time. I loved our conversations and I'll be heartbroken if we never speak again. So there's a little call out, out to the ether. Um, anyway, I, I just really enjoyed this conversation. I'm not sure what 
kind of a schedule you have ahead of you, boys. It's a beautiful, sunny day. I'm going to take a big exhale this week. It was really, it was just an epic week. Um, and I really hope, um, I'm hoping the three of us will continue to talk about this subject um, and, and, and be a positive force and continue to, to encourage people to, to talk. I want to find out more about the Portals Project. Uh, oh, and yeah. that, that, sounds cool. really, that sounds really, really interesting. Um, I'm going to let either of you guys, if you have any final words. Yeah, Doug, any uh, last words? It's been a pleasure talking to you here today and getting to know you. It's, uh, you know, we you got a lot of common music, you know, uh, some time in uh, abroad. So it's just super cool connecting with someone that, you know, shared so many experiences. Thanks for having me, guys. I think it's good work what you're doing. I think uh, ideas, uh, stories, what, what, it, what it means to be a man is actually another big theme about this whole election, which one could write a book about. But uh, ho hopefully for, for the future, what it means to be a man it includes vulnerability, includes compassion, includes empathy, and includes the, the kind of uh, stature to say, uh, well, I don't agree with you, but uh, we, can, we can keep talking. Absolutely. The conversation must continue. And if we keep having it, we'll, we'll continue to, uh, you know, to make it a little bit better. So today I just want to leave um, with one little quote um, that I found here, which I think is uh, appropriate for, for this time. And then I'll go ahead and sign off. Um, this is um, the author of the Tibetan book of the living and um, If we can indeed reassess and proceed with this newfound humility and openness and a real acceptance of our death, we will find ourselves in a much more receptive in spiritual instructions and spiritual practice. This receptivity could well open to yet another marvelous possibility, that of true healing. So regardless where our country goes in the next four years, I'm just hoping healing for everyone in this country and for around the world. This has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerability Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. And I'm Doug Williams. Thank you for listening.